one of the big life-shaking, earth-shaking, life-shattering, earth-shaking, one of the big moments of my life was at 17 years old. And of all times, when my mother and I were sitting down to watch our weekly show, Survivor. Now, this was a special night because I was told that my brother and uncle were coming to watch Survivor with us, which they normally didn't do. I normally saw them once a week, but to have them over for Survivor night, my brother comes in, my uncle comes in, my mom's boyfriend comes in. Now it's a packed Survivor night. Except Survivor never got put on. The two largest of the bunch, my uncle and my brother, sat down next to me. My mother informed me that this was an intervention and that I was going to be going away to the hills of West Virginia for my own survivor moment of sorts. I was getting sent away to a wilderness program. Yeah, no thanks. I immediately race down to my room, start frantically packing a bag. I'm going to the mountains, all right, but not the Allegheny Mountains. I'm going to the mountain behind my house and getting the hell out of here. Until... Frank walks down the steps into my room. Frank was a particularly large black man. But more importantly, he was a family friend, and he was the father of a friend of mine named Frank Jr., who had died earlier that year from a, what I would call, drinking-related death. He was drunk with a bunch of friends and got into a fight, and the girlfriend of the person he was fighting stabbed him in the back, which hit his heart, I believe, and... He bled out because everybody ran away terrified. Frankie Jr. had died alone, and Frank Sr. was now standing in front of me, and at that point, my decision was pretty much made. He told me something like, I wish I could have taken my son here, but instead I'm taking you. So come with me, son. And so I went with him. We hopped on an airplane, we flew to West Virginia, we drove for hours until we got up the mountain, and I started this program called Academy, which is no more. The program was broken into three parts. The first part was survival. Where you spend a lot of time with yourself in the woods, hiking, backpacking, camping, learning to survive, but mostly learning who you are when no one else is talking to you. Because at this place, you're not allowed to talk to anyone and no one is talking to you. And there's a lot to be learned in this kind of setting. I think it's something that everybody should do and something that I try to do even periodically now from time to time, which is to see who you are when you take away your media, take away your friends, take away all your spheres of influence besides you and your spirit. But I'm going to jump to the second month, which was communal. It was after learning how to be with yourself, now learning how to be with people. And what started it off was us in a yurt, waiting, not knowing what was going to happen until a man walks into the room. A pair of combat boots laced all the way up with military fatigue pants tucked into them, hands behind his back and a high and tight haircut. He walked proudly and stood tall and came right into the center of the room and took a moment to look us each in the eyes before he began to talk. My name is Paul, and I love you. And by the end of this, you will understand what love really is. Your parents think they were loving you, but your parents were more interested in being your friends than your parents. Love is being willing to do the right thing even when the person you love will hate you for it. And I would rather love you by holding you accountable, by helping you strive to a higher standard, and by being the best version of yourself you can possibly be than be your friend. This was a big moment for me and a big part of my life. Not because it's the first time I'd ever experienced love that wasn't squishy or comfortable, but it was one of those times where it just hits you like a ton of bricks. And for a second, the spectrum of what I saw as love grew. And this wasn't tough love, mostly because I think tough love generally gets used when people are trying to justify their shitty behavior. But this just felt like real love. Love in a way that we're not used to all the time. Because in our society, we're kind of at semantic overload. If you take the number of impressions of love that you get from organic moments of feeling or experiencing love compared to the amount of impressions you get from 
media or marketing or things that have co-opted the word to sell you stuff or to convey a message that they control. It's We've gotten a caricaturized and cheapened version of love that seems like it would only fit in a rom-com or on a Hallmark card or branded to little girls, which, broadly speaking, has left us with the idea that love is this simple, one-dimensional, narrow range of emotions that we use when we want to show people that they're behaving the way we want them to or that we appreciate them, as if love is something that you buy or as if love is something that you find, rather than what I believe the truth to be, which is that love is a choice, and often one of the hardest choices. If you only carry love with you and love into your life and your actions for others when you feel like it, you're really missing out on one of the major parts of the practice of learning to understand love, to be a student of love and to live in a loving way. Love is hard sometimes. Sometimes the people who need it most deserve it the least. And as said in this interview, when you can do that, you can leave scars of compassion. You can leave reminders that love isn't necessarily something that you have to earn. I'm asking you to start becoming a student of love. And this is something that you can read books on, but it can be done internally. You can ask yourself, how do I walk in love in this moment? How do I let love guide me? And listen to your intuition. Not the spheres of influence around you, because often that's not where the answer is. I can't tell you how many times some of my favorite organizations or favorite activists or favorite artists or influencers have invoked the name of love while really using fear, guilt, and shame, not maliciously, I want to make that clear, but because it's effective. But its efficacy is really short-lived. Often, when you make a change based off fear, guilt, or shame, it's a reaction, and it's very short and hollow, and generally done without integrity, generally done when you think you're being watched. How often do we whip ourselves into a frenzy, into a manic state for New Year's and our New Year's resolutions just to drop them? Today's interview is with somebody who I would call a new friend named Jeremy Courtney, who's had an incredible life. He wrote a book called Love Anyway. He has an organization called Preemptive Love. The work that he's brought to the world, the change that he is currently bringing to the world can be overwhelming if you're trying to follow his way. But that's not the point. The point is to listen to what love can do. Love starts in the home. It starts in your heart. It starts small and it grows like everything else. Here is my conversation with Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy, we're all set. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. So I like to start this way. This can be as big or small of a question as you'd like. But Jeremy, who are you? Oh, who am I? Love that. I'm someone who's trying to be a peacemaker, which means perhaps first and foremost, I'm a peace seeker. A man, husband, father, friend, business leader, peace seeker, peacemaker. Founder of an awesome nonprofit called Preemptive Love. Founder of an organization, yeah. I want to talk a lot about kind of what you guys are up to and how it started, but I was wondering if we could back up way before then, because I noticed that people's often when people have had a lot of media coverage, there's it seems like their story starts at a specific place mm. when I really think that it starts way before then. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about how you got to. I guess the starting point of preemptive love. Oh, such a good insight. I love that. Yeah, I I love that realization that it's it's really the whole path that gets us to be whoever we are at any moment. So I was born into a family of Christian ministers. My grandfather was a pastor. My dad 
you know, essentially followed in his footsteps in his own way and became a full-time Christian minister as well. We grew up, I grew up in the, the Baptist sort of strain of Protestantism, which in our case, especially was a, a very, very conservative strain of, of that overall kind of movement and very loving home, very kind family and also simultaneous to all that very strict very rules oriented very fear-based when it comes to faith religion where we go when we die and therefore how we should live while we're here and that was that was home it was safe it was comfortable you know the the rules were laid out the rules were pretty clear the boundaries of what was okay and what was not okay was was pretty clear cut and that provided a kind of womb to grow up in, you know, a kind of home that, that was, was very comforting and very safe in a lot of ways. And then I went out into the world, left home, went to college, and I don't know quite how to put my finger on it, but ultimately found that faith system to be wanting in some ways. But unlike a lot of, I guess, my peers who grew up in conservative life and then lashed out and went straight to a more throwing off of those shackles into a liberal kind of sphere or an anti-faith kind of sphere. I actually went into an even more conservative kind of place mm-hmm. in some ways. I Safety? I don't know. I, I still don't fully maybe understand why, except that I, I met some people who introduced me to some ideas about God and therefore this world that made me feel like what I grew up in wasn't actually serious enough. Oh, yeah. It didn't take certain things seriously enough. So my college years were largely marked, and young adult years were largely marked by going even further into um, a kind of Christian faith that I would I would now look back and characterize as being very defined by individual chosenness. So this idea that that God individually chooses who will be saved forever from hellfire and who yeah. will, who will, I guess the, the sort of other side of it that we said kind of under our breath, I guess, was that like who would be damned to hell, but in a very personalized kind of sense. And I think somehow that was comforting in a way to, to be able to posture and live in the world as though I was the chosen in some ways, a very American idea. I mean, America is built on notions of chosenness. It's really seductive to want to have the answer. Exactly. Right? If you think you have the answer, you're yeah, in your own mind doing well. Yeah, I love that word, seductive, because I, I do, now looking back at it, I think that's exactly what it was. It It was alluring because of its promises of certainty. And as a young man trying to just be well in the world, I think there's probably nothing I wanted more than certainty. I wasn't, I I hadn't been raised to ask questions. Questions had been largely chastised or even, you know, punished in a way. And so more certainty was more comforting than more freedom. Yeah. For a time. I think that's very human, actually. You know, certainty is safety. And so what, what actually happened in this new this new form of Christianity that you found where it was more intense. Like, well, I became a real jerk. Yeah. Because I was certain now. And I, I mean, I think at some deep level, I wasn't certain at some deep level. I was, I was deeply afraid. I was scared that I wasn't actually chosen, scared that I wasn't actually saved, scared that I wouldn't actually make it out. Okay. Alive. Well, forever and ever and ever. And that, that deep fear led to a surface level cockiness and arrogance and over identifying with my surety, my certainty. So I'd say for, I don't know, maybe seven, 10 years, I, I think I, I really wore that version of my faith in a way that did a lot of damage, outward damage, social damage in the world. Yeah. And so for people who aren't familiar with your work, where, where does your, journey into preemptive love really begin for you when you think about it? Yeah. So somewhere along the way, 
after college, got married, and within just a couple months of getting married, the the terror attacks on September 11th happened. And so we were young, just married. I was obviously still very insecure now with the new layer of, you know, being a young husband and trying to win and exceed, succeed out in the world. Um, when this, this, these terror attacks really, I think, shoot through the American mythos, uh, the American religion, I think. The American temples were actually torn down destroyed on September 11th. It wasn't, it wasn't just some buildings. It was the places where we worship as Americans. So our, our temple to capitalism in the World Trade Centers was destroyed on September 11th. And our temple called the Pentagon, where we worship national security and national defense and militarism, these two hubs of American religious life were destroyed. And I think our collective religion was somehow destroyed with it. Yeah, I mean, my Islam went from some unknown yes. thing to, in my mind, known overnight. Every day. Yeah, I was, God, how old was I? 11 or 12? I was uh, 10? I don't I was, I was young. And my mom said, you need to wake up and you need to come watch the TV. Whoa, interesting. And you wow. know, before that, I didn't know that like, Islam and Sikhs were different. Mm. I just thought it's mm -hmm. all the same thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And instantly overnight, things changed, you know. So I, I feel like, especially with my generation, it's like that was our our morning serial television, you know, was this extreme event. Which um, came, I mean, and when that's your first impression of something, it it literally imprints upon you and you have to work to redefine something that has now been defined in such negative terms. Yeah, I still have lingering stuff from it, even now. Hmm. You know, and I think that I just haven't done enough on my end to educate myself and to to hmm. jump in. But I notice that I have a prejudice uh, with Islam that doesn't exist, say, with Judeo Christian mm -hmm. or Buddhism mm -hmm. or Hindu. And so that's still something I, I am actively working wow. on. I notice it still comes up like i watched the um the 30 minute preemptive love video that you guys did and just watching those clips of isis instantly all of it heart beating you know the whole thing the whole fear and the actual connection in my mind between isis and and just general muslims i can still feel that that bond in mm -hmm. there and i hate to admit that as a you know west coast mm. you know progressive mm. like i hate to admit that but i i just have to be honest with with the feelings that came up when i watched it mm. and it was surprising because i don't normally it, it i don't normally watch anything that challenges that mm. framework or makes it come up but well diving into your work i noticed it yeah thanks for divulging that i think it is helpful for all of us to hear more of us admit that that's, that's what we were socialized into. I think it helps Muslim friends to hear us come clean and come true with those, those kind of confessions. That, that's what they know to be true right. of their existence in America, uh, in the United States. But I do, my, my experience suggests that it helps them to hear more and more of us tell the truth about it. Right. Well, otherwise, you're just gaslighting, right? Yep. Um, and so September 11th happens, and what's your connection to it? How does it change the course of your life? I mean, like you, on some level, it. I don't remember talking much about Islam before September 11th, but it felt like that's all we talked about every day after for a while. Um, and so I'm now, I mean, some of what I'll say next really takes today's perspective. This is not how I would have described it at the time, but I now think that what essentially happened is I was weaponized into the war on terror. I was, I was prime material to be used against Muslims in defense of America and in defense of America's version of Christianity and in defense of America's state religion, which is some amalgamation of Christianity, capitalism, and 
nationalist, patriotic, national defense type militarism. Um, now, by saying I was weaponized into the war on terror, I don't mean that I joined the military. I actually went out into the world after 9-11 as a Christian missionary. Um, and I would have fought against you and denied it if you had accused me of that at that time of being some kind of tool of the state or influenced by the state or anything like that. I, I definitely thought that I was a, an independent thinker who was making my own decisions and making my own choices. But looking back now, I, I just don't think that I think that I was, I was part of a system. I'd been raised and socialized into a, a certain view of the world. And I was easily activated after nine 11 to go out and get the Muslims and yeah. save the Muslims, save their souls, save their souls, but also save America by saving the Muslims. Why must we save the Muslims in part because they're coming to get us if we don't. And so saving the Muslims really is also about saving ourselves. Wow. And where's the paradigm shift? <laughs> uh, I met my first Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't take long. <laughs> um, it, it probably didn't happen overnight with the first Muslim friend, but once they stopped being this mass threat horde on the horizon, and became my neighbors. So we actually move overseas. We, we become the minority. We become the suspicious ones in the neighborhood. Our neighbors and our friends and our grocer and our butcher start looking at us as though we are the sleeper cell waiting to destroy their country. And in fact, on some level, we were. We were undercover. We were lying we were engaged in misdirection. We were taking all the best things that TV shows like 24 or other espionage, covert, you know, kind of literature and lore could, could inspire us with, or, you know, capture our imaginations. And we were employing those tactics as missionaries. And looking back now, I, <laughs> I understand why our Muslim neighbors were suspicious of us. They, they could see through us, even though we thought we were so savvy. I mean, to be clear and fair, we were not ever seeking to do them physical violence or physical harm, but I, but I do understand their suspicion of us now, given, given the United States track record on overthrowing governments and the CIA's track record of, you know, co-opting humanitarian work and you know business work and things like that and using it as a cover for for american government interventionism i i understand why they saw me with such suspicion at that time so you know fast forward a number of years of living under their suspicion of us um and then letting them color in the lines of islam for me themselves or or maybe even letting them erase what I had already colored in about Islam. And they'll go, no, give me that eraser. Let me, let me actually erase the thing that you've defined us by. And now give me those crayons and I'll color in for you the true colors of our Islam, at least. A different picture emerged over, over time. And my stereotypes and bigotry and prejudice just couldn't withstand the weight of their generosity and their love and their lives. And you're in Iraq at this time? No, we landed first in Turkey for a couple of years. Okay, in Turkey. And when did you realize that you were no longer on a missionary trip? Hmm. I had a, a, a profound kind of spiritual falling apart meets spiritual awakening or something. I, I don't even quite know how to define it. But um, I walked into a covert undercover missionary conference with one agenda and I walked out completely transformed, no longer able to uphold that same agenda. And I, I cover the story of this in, in my most recent book, but the upshot of it is that I, I just, I ceased to see us as, I, I ceased to see myself as someone who needed to, to conquer them and win and change them. And I, I just came to see us as, somehow belonging to a much deeper thing together. At that point, why have anything to do with the Middle East mm, at all? I guess because 
I now knew them not as an other, but I, I knew them as neighbors. And and in, in a couple of cases, I knew them as something more akin to a brother. Yeah, they became family. And and so to be then in the general region and watch the U.S.-led war against Iraq playing out in our southern border, meaning we were living in Turkey, right? And then Turk and Iraq is a southern neighbor of Turkey. Watching that war play out in our neighboring country. It just gave it more import, I guess, than it might have had otherwise. It wasn't a war all the way over there. Now it's my American neighbors and, and family members and cousins and, you know, my, my American family fighting against my quote-unquote Muslim family or neighbors. And uh, I don't know, it's a bit of a clash of worldviews and realities. And so we decided... Uh, we decided to move into Iraq and hope to start a new chapter that was more based on humanitarian response and peacemaking type efforts than the conversionary conquering kind of thing that we had been about up until that point. It's just such a wild pivot for me, like to conceptualize in my mind of like, you go there for this purpose, the whole purpose fall, you know, the, the floor falls out from under you of that purpose. And then to just like pivot and be like, okay, we're going to go to Iraq now. Like, was it because you felt like no one else was going to do it? Or what is mm. the... I do think I've always been attracted to the idea of like going where no one else will go to love the people no one else will love. I wouldn't always have used that phrase necessarily, but if I'm if I'm thinking back, yeah, there is something that's long been interesting or attractive or compelling about taking the road less traveled, I guess. And give us the origin story of preemptive love. Like you go to Iraq, now with a new mission. Yeah, so we end up moving into Iraq, middle of the Iraq war, height of sectarian violence. 2006, I started um, taking a couple trips in, checking it out a little bit to understand what we might be getting into. Um, and it ended up moving in. And within just a couple of months, we moved in with another humanitarian organization, um, a small humanitarian organization. And uh, I think we had certainly rose-colored glasses about what it would be, what it would be like to not be those kind of missionaries anymore, but to be these kinds of humanitarian aid workers or whatever. We had no experience, no background, no training, no qualifications, just that we were, What know, did you have? Like, what did you show up with? A, a willingness to work hard and a willingness to die. And you just on the ground started to figure out what people needed? I guess because of those, maybe it was a kind of bigger they are, harder they fall scenario where our our expectations were so heightened and our rose-colored glasses were so rosy that uh, it, it may be that that organization could never have lived up under the weight of our expectations. So we had a bit of a falling out pretty quickly. Um, and I don't know now how to look back and parse whether that was my fault or whether we had legit grievances or whatever, but all that really matters is that we ended up parting ways. And at the exact same time, really the catalyst for parting ways was that I was working on my laptop in a hotel and I met this little girl whose dad appealed to me for help. And dad basically said, my daughter's going to die if she doesn't get a life-saving heart surgery. You're an American. I've got you cornered here and I'm going to make the most of this moment to ask that you give everything you can to save my daughter's life. And um, I was a little moved by his plight. I mean, I saw myself in him. I saw my daughter in her. So there was some real empathy there, but also it wasn't purely altruistic. I was, I was a little cornered. I was a little guilted into wanting to help. And so I, I took kind of a reluctant step forward with this family it was perfunctory. It was probably a little bit about clearing my conscience as, as much as it was about saving her life. And 
to my surprise, we actually made some movement for this girl within like my first or second phone call. We were off to the races on helping save her life. And I was like, wow, I've been here three months and this is the first good that I've done for somebody. One thing led to another. We helped that one girl and I guess dad turned around and started telling all his friends. Yeah, because it's it's almost like a, a niche issue in Iraq, right? Because of some chemical warfare or something is causing birth defects with hearts. We're not there there's been no empirical evidence that we've, you know, felt confident broadcasting. So we really just have anecdotal and kind of hypotheses about what what may be behind it all. But um some combination of chemical weapons going back to the eighties under the Saddam era. Uh, UN sanctions and a widespread malnutrition that went across Iraq and a dismantling of Iraqi healthcare systems through a sanctions regime that was very violent, led by the UN, probably gave rise, malnourishment can give rise to birth defects. And then moving into the 2003 war era, US weapons uh, start to become highly, highly implicated in a rise of birth defects, both among Iraqi complainants and among American soldiers. It's not just the other people saying we did war crimes or something. It's American soldiers saying our kids are being born with birth defects too. What gives? And, and we so, were using a lot of nasty stuff like uh, depleted or what do you, what do you call those rounds? Depleted uranium yeah. is one of the things that is most highly suspected. Okay. If for no other reason, because it is a heavy metal, and so something like lead, you know, you could liken it maybe to lead poisoning um, because of the way that it explodes and then settles in kind of a fine dust all over wherever the sun shines that it's used. You know, there's a lot of suspicion that it leads to heavy metal poisoning, but it also has a radioactive property that probably doesn't do any damage if you encounter it outside your body. But because of the way it explodes into a fine dust, if women ingest it, it, it probably has the capacity that the research suggests that it has the capacity to do damage at the cellular level once it gets inside your body. Hmm. So whether radioactive or whether heavy metal poison toxicity, there's a lot of claims that depleted uranium, our use of depleted uranium led to a, a widespread increase of birth defects across Iraq. And no matter, either way, at least, there is this giant wave of, of kids being born with a heart birth defect. The the other two factors that, that probably need to be named are the practice of still marrying a first or second cousin due to tribalism across Iraq. So that is, that's definitely a factor somewhere. And then the even harder to measure thing would be just the general presence of stress in war. Yeah. And what, what extreme stress can do, particularly to female body hormones and, and children who are being in utero, who are in utero at that time. I remember coming to San Francisco for the first time. This was like 10 years ago and seeing the homelessness in San Francisco and hmm. feeling like desire to be helpful. And I, cause I lived in the Tenderloin, so it was like the ground floor of the homelessness. Mm -hmm. It's just, you walk down the street, there's just a lot of suffering for a major US city, yeah. you know? And it's bad. I started off like with such great intentions and like cooking giant batches of, of spaghetti and putting it in Ziploc bags and like handing it out to becoming very, like feeling just really hopeless yeah, uh, pretty quickly. Cause it just felt like I couldn't put any dent in anything. Yeah. So like, where do you find the, the I wanna say courage, almost like the willingness to take on something that couldn't be taken on? There's this principle in business, entrepreneurship, parenting, personal development, that it helps to get wins early on and then move from win to win to win to win. Or conversely, if you get negative feedback early on, then you just come to expect negative feedback and negative feedback, failure after failure. I guess in our case, we, we got some early wins and we saw the early effects of helping. Sure, on one level, well, and it should be said that not everything I just dumped here about the complexity of the problem was apparent to us on day one. 
on day one, it presented as one little girl who needed a life-saving surgery. On year two, it was more complex. By year four, it was even more complex, you know? So our own awareness of how big the problem was was unfolding as we moved through the problem itself. So early on, it felt like just win after win after win. We would meet a child, we would raise money, we would get the child to surgery, everyone was happy, child goes on to live, whereas child was going to die, you know? So the, the early rounds of feedback were amazing. And for just the cost of a couple thousand dollars, not only could we save a child's life, but the way we were doing it, it was we were brokering sort of enemy groups against one another. Well, we were brokering enemy groups to cooperate with one another to save a child's life. It started taking on even greater import. It wasn't just about this one child, but somehow embodied in this child was a greater story of bringing communities back together. And literally in the body of these children, as they came back from the enemy doctor, they carried on their bodies the scars of compassion, actually, in a country that was full up with scars that told the story of other people's hate and other people's fear. These kids were coming out of surgery with the scars that told the story of somebody else's love. These kids went home from their surgeries and their families brought them home saying, no, 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 don't, don't you say that about those people. They saved our daughter's life. Christian, Muslim, Sunni, Shia, Turk, Kurd, Israeli, Iraqi, you know, like we brokered these surgeries across a lot of different lines. And, um, I just think the early feedback of that felt like moving from success to success and it made it easy to keep going in a way. There's a, there's a turn at some point, yeah. right? Where it no longer just becomes about helping little kids, but you start to really get a bigger picture. And it does it actually, does it start with ISIS or where does it start to go? Oh, wow. We have more work to do. Yeah. So the heart surgery work alone had become so popular, well-reputed, impactful. We were given entree into the highest halls of power and we, we were serving some of the poorest, most down and out people in the country. So our the, the breadth or the kind of depth of our relationships network was very profound. It took us all over the country and in the middle or, you know, in the height of that success, this little known terror group called ISIS springs up inside Iraq, then goes on to reach worldwide acclaim in 2014, driving millions of people out of their homes, displacing, you know, all these people committing genocide against um, the Yazidi people in particular. And we are indisputably one of the best positioned organizations in the world in terms of our access to these hard places, our reputation in these hard places, our track record in these hard places. Um, and a lot of organizations pulled out because ISIS was so terrifying Yeah, and we were able to push in. And so we pivoted from the medical heart surgery work to just doing whatever we needed to do to help our neighbors who were running for their lives. So we initially it was just, we were in emergency mode show up with food, water, shelter, whatever people needed to stay alive. But it didn't take long before we realized like handouts are only going to get us so far. Handouts are only going to help our friends so much. Their, their towns are now occupied by ISIS. Oh, well now six months on their towns are being battled over against ISIS. Oh, well now their town is decimated and destroyed because the battle to drive ISIS out was kind of shock and awe, scorched earth policy. And now there's literally no home for them to return to on the order of hundreds of thousands of people per city were now essentially locked out. Um, and we just realized handouts, we, we can't keep giving handouts. We are going to have to help people think about the long haul and how they provide for themselves. So we, we went on to, create a robust jobs program. And so now our work is largely predicated on helping fast for those who are on the run from conflict and then providing help that lasts in the form of job creation so that they can stand on their own two feet and rebuild their homes. And then we do all of that still with that same ethos of 
connecting people who might think they're supposed to be at odds or connecting people with historical rifts in their community. We do it all in that the spirit of kind of what I said at the top, peacemaking or helping people find, you know, peace in themselves and peace with each other. Dissolving the illusion of the other. Yeah. Right. So when you're a Christian, are you still a Christian? I'm, I'm sitting here with mouth agape because it's, it feels so hard to know what some of these labels even mean. Yeah. Depending on who's listening, using them, listening. Yeah. Yeah. So I've gotten to the point where I certainly don't want to alienate anyone. I don't, there's a part of me that doesn't want to say, no, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't, I don't want to say that, but there's a part of me that goes, well, what do you mean? Like what, what kind of Christian? I don't know. I, I'm a Christian. Yes. I mean, that's, I don't know how I could ever put that down. It's such a formative part of my life, my family, my culture, where I come from. It's, it's the language. It's the way that I know is to be a Christian. Um, I don't know how to be a Buddhist. I don't know how to be a Muslim. I don't know how to be without those frameworks. So yeah, I'm a Christian, but somehow I'm completely transformed and also don't even necessarily feel like I belong in Christian spaces a lot of times anymore because I'm not the Christian that I used to be. I'm not the Christian that they once knew. I'm not a Christian that that feels like I know too many other Christians who are wanting to do it the way I now do it. What gives you hope about we are literally in the most polarized, most tribal this country has ever been for sure. What gives you hope that like I am not very hopeful, you know, it just feels like we're just getting further and further apart. Like there's a reason why this podcast in particular, if you mentioned your political party, I just edited it out. (laughs) I do. (laughs) And uh, I've had like, you know, some great political activists and I just say, we're not going to talk about politics today because I don't want somebody hearing you're a Republican or hearing that you're liberal and then tuning out like you don't have anything to teach. How does that work for you on matters of faith identity? Do you feel like it's as extreme along those lines? Um, The fact that I didn't just fully denounce Christianity, where does that leave you and listeners? One way or the other, maybe the fact that I did appear to denounce Christianity to some of your listeners. How how do you feel like that plays out? I'm interviewing you now. Yeah, I was once uh, very Christian. I wouldn't say very Christian in American terms, but in Sam's life, very Christian. You know, like I believed in in Jesus and the Christian God, and and I've I I, I have since had to like adapt it. So I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't I don't go to church. I love some Christians. Some of my favorite people, my mom's a Christian, uh, who I think it just totally makes the world a better place. So you feel like politics are still at a point that's more divisive along identity lines than I feel like than faith type matters? I'm sure that there's some people that have specific trauma related to faith yeah. where they could hear the word Christian sure. and tune out. Uh, but it's not something that has come up. You know, for me I've I, got that trauma. Do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I caused that trauma, I believe. Yeah. So you're hyper aware of it. Yeah. I got to a point where I was so toxic, I ended up starting to listen to conservative news. They were just literally these uh, poisonous, evil people. The only solution I could come up with was to like try to listen to conservative news. And now I still do. You know, if I listen to an hour of liberal news, I try to listen to an hour of conservative news. You're saying the liberalism in your life was so toxic that you counterbalanced it? It was like, no, it was like I viewed conservatives as like the other. Ah, you viewed them as so evil that you decided to research them and spend a little time with yeah. them. And did it help? Yeah, it did help. And there's still some really important issues, I think, that are worth worth debating and fighting over, especially when it comes to people's like just right to exist or just being comfortable. You know, I feel like it, it's a pretty basic right that you should feel comfortable in your home and feel comfortable in, on the street. Mm-hmm. It it dulled the blade a little bit. Mm. And obviously my, you know, the only thing that I ever comes under threat when I'm listening is that I'm bisexual, right? So it's not like I'm listening to somebody spout poison about me. So I have a very specific view of it. I found that I have more in common with conservatives than I realized. Mm. I found out that like I don't 
Like if this were a more complex political system, it wouldn't just be so clear cut for me. You know, if there was like lots of parties, yeah, I could probably find something right. somewhere else that lined up with my values more. The dualism is really problematic. It's really awful. You're either one of us or one of them. Yep. But yeah, it's just, it, it is like watching, it's, it's like being on two different planets though, to watch both news. Mm. Like it really is. And so when I watch a host who's charismatic, who I disagree with, I can find myself going, oh, that's an interesting point. Totally. Right? Yeah. And for me, part of it is that like, I love the craft of an argument as well. So part of me goes, wow, that's not actually something I believe. That was just a really compelling case. But well done. Yeah, but well, but well done. <laughs> And so I guess what it did is it, it took these people that I, I had no idea how they got to where they were, and it filled in the backstory that like, these are people that have their own personal train of logic. Mm-hmm. They just happened to have been on a different track than me and come to a different conclusion than I did. And I try not to think I'm right. I don't know that I am. But I, I try to just figure out what am I, what is important that I believe and what is important that I give money to and where am I, I guess, where is it keeping me separate from other humans Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. So I would say on some level, that's what's giving me hope. That's where I find hope is in people like you. And as you've no doubt learned through this podcast and the community that you've, you know, drawn to yourself, there's, more of us out there like this than the dualism would lead us to believe. I think there's a more sort of gettable, middle, reachable, middle, organizable middle who could, who are looking for something other than the extreme right and the extreme left, the fundamentalist right and the fundamentalist left. And I don't think both groups wield it the same way. I don't think both are equally wrong on this thing or that thing. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to make some kind of clean moral equivocation here, but I, there are patterns that are true to both sides on certain things. And I see a lot of us in the middle or who even feel like we've transcended some of this stuff and are actually living on a different plane altogether where we don't want to condemn either side. We actually can, we've gotten to a place in our life and existence and journey where we can embrace the phases and the communities that we've passed through on the way to where we are now. I think a sign of immaturity is that when you come out of a phase or come out of a, fa- a, a space or a community, you, you look back at that thing you've just emerged from and you curse it. You know, like, oh, those ignorant, stupid, conservative Christians, like, how could they believe that? That's a very normal thing for a lot of us to say or do or believe when we come out of a phase like that. But I think if we keep walking and keep journeying and keep moving forward, there is a whole way of being out beyond it that comes to a, that transcends to a higher place and then can look back at those places we've come from and, and bless it, like see the rightness in it, see the goodness in it and, and thank that community for being a part of our life while they were. Who were the teachers in your life along this journey that really taught you that there is a way to love anyway? Like there is a way to love, even though there's such a, big divide between ideals or religions or hmm. one of my teammates, Aaron might have been the first person to introduce the challenge to love anyway, at a time where I wasn't altogether sure I wanted to love anymore. <laughs> so we had been using this kind of pithy phrase inside our work, love first, ask questions later, which I think was beautiful in its own way. It was a real mark of naivete and the naivete kept drawing us forward the problem with naivete, in my case at least, was that eventually reality caught up with us. So you can, you can claim to not know. You can claim you want to ask the questions later. You can, you can kick that can down the road for a little bit. But at least in our case, life eventually caught up. And I, I knew what this life was all about. 
Now, this life meaning front lines, helping people, ISIS type reality, it meant my friends got kidnapped. It meant our neighbor's daughters got raped. It meant my friends were killed. It meant we got shot at by snipers. It meant we dodged bombs from above. And I didn't know that I wanted to love anymore. And Aaron essentially said, basically, you, you don't have to throw it all away and walk away. There's, there's another way. You can accept the pain of the world. You can integrate the pain and the suffering into your life. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to push it off down the road. You don't have to act like we're not going to get hit by the suffering of the world. You can just let it in and embrace it and let it be a companion on the journey and then love anyway. I think Erin has been a really important guide and friend and teacher. She's a little older than us and had already seen, I think, aspects of her religious journey fall apart and not work anymore and just was a, a meaningful sort of older sister, auntie type figure in our life who, who I think has been a real comfort for me in a lot of these things. How do you keep hate out though? Like when, when, it's, when it is hitting home, when your own teammates are getting hurt, when your friend's family are getting raped or kidnapped, how do you even manage like you're on the emotional extreme of something that is very human. Yeah. I think, look, I, I don't want to portray that, that we're somehow immune to negative feelings or, or even hate. It's not a word I really identify with, hate. And we work to avoid framing hardly anything up in terms of hate versus love or overcoming hate. Or I don't find the word itself to be very helpful because I think it's such a turnoff for it. We know that we're not supposed to hate most of us. And I think particularly kind of our, our civic religion. And then if you come out of a lot of various specific religions, like hate is preached against. So I just don't think in terms of hate, I think in terms of fear, and that helps me see other people's action through a lens of fear. So rather than thinking they hate us or we should hate them, I just try to maybe drop a level deeper into what I'm actually feeling or what I can imagine they might be feeling. No, they're afraid. I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? Why are they afraid? There's not enough to go around. They want to belong. They want to show they're tough. They want to get while the getting's good. I mean, there could be any number of reasons and none of those reasons need to justify evil actions, but it has allowed a little space in my heart for empathy as to why we organize the way we do to commit violence against each other the way we do, or what it might require for us to organize to commit peace on behalf of each other the way we could. I remember pretty shortly after the 2016 election, I saw a lot of friends of mine getting whipped into like fighting mode, mm -hmm. and, like whipped into like these like Antifa type groups mm -hmm. where they're like literally wearing masks and punching people. Yep. And I remember just trying to be like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is not going to solve the answer. Like, this is not the answer at all. And it's so, there's something so primal about it. It's so mm -hmm. easy to whip people into totally. war. You know, it's such a quick response to just like smash the bugs. And so when you're, I guess when you're working with people who, who feel like that in whatever context, whatever corner of the world that they are, that they do feel that way. They feel like the only solution is to, you know, punch Nazis. Yeah. What do you counteract that with? I think it helps that I know firsthand intimately how I have changed my mind on huge matters of conviction. I used to be this kind of guy. And then I just woke up one day and I wasn't. Like the whole system fell apart for me. I didn't believe the thing that I used to believe. I saw the light, I heard the voice, I met a person and it all changed. That's happened to me, not just the one time that I referenced, but it's happened to me numerous times on numerous things that were important to me. Some of them completely life altering, you know, two or three life altering moments like that. And so I think when I can hold with some humility, the awareness that I myself have changed, it helps me have hope that other people can change as well. 
And if I can believe that other people can change, then the last thing I want to do is contribute to their entrenchment. I don't want to help people dig in where they are. I want to help be the off-ramp. I want to help be the invitation into a better way. I want to help be the, the ladder that helps someone level up. And I know it's possible because I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen me leave behind elements of my racism, elements of my xenophobia, elements of my homophobia, elements of my transphobia. Like I've, I've left behind so much of that. I don't assume that it's not somehow still in me as well. I assume that a lot of that is still in me and I will continue to need to work to get it out of me and to be against the systemic expressions of a lot of those things. But, but I can't deny that I've changed. And so it gives me a lot of hope that we can all keep changing. So for people who want to be beacons, like what, what would you tell them? Like, where do they start? How do they get on the ground floor of, of actually promoting change in their own life hmm. in a way that, you know, I personally, in, in terms of activism that, that I think works, I don't think shouting at people works. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody's ever been like shouted at and mm-hmm. like, oh, I better go do an inventory and see what I'm doing wrong. Totally. Agree. I saw somebody, a family friend of mine who came from an incredibly prejudicial church, go to a Christmas event in San Francisco, and he ended up hanging out with a bunch of uh, drag queens. And they were so gentle with him Mm. and his ignorance. Mm -hmm. They were so gentle. And he was just like totally just saying ignorant shit left and right. Mm. And they're just kind of like, oh, well, honey, you've never tried women's underwear. Mm. You know, and he ended up laughing with them and becoming friends with them. And I remember hearing that he had left that church because of that. Mm -hmm. And it was not because somebody had yelled at him and told him what he was doing was wrong. It's because when he heard the pastor talk now, they were talking about, new friends of his they loved anyway they right. loved him anyway they loved him anyway which i would never use as a cudgel i would never say that marginalized victimized oppressed on the edge stepped on boot on their throat people must ought should love their oppressor anyway that's not our that's not our message our message is something more akin to what you just said that i don't know if we should i don't know if we have to but i know when we do, it might be one of the only forces strong enough to transform evil is love. So I get it why the most vulnerable, the most marginalized wouldn't want to take up this message. And yet somehow in the psycho-spiritual dynamic that we are as people, I'm with you. I don't think shame and ostracization and yelling has the power to transform evil into good, the way that love has the power power to metabolize negative things and like actually transform it back out on the other side is something beautiful. How do you balance your mission in your life's work with also having a family? Like how do you find a healthy balance to be there? Because you have kids now. Yeah. Yeah. Our daughter's 14, our son's 12, Jessica, my wife, and I have been fully in this together, you know, really from the beginning. And I think it helps, I mean, on some level, our family has always viewed this as our family's work. It demands more of me on some days. It demands more of Jessica on some days. It, the kids get a pass and they can sit at home and watch TV some days. The kids are dragged along and are fully a part of it other days. Kind of just depends and there's different seasons, but we care a lot and talk a lot about as a family about who we want to be as a family. We don't talk about our work as much as we talk about our being. Who are we becoming? And what kind of world do we want to help become through us and our agency and the choices we make and our friendship to this world and our neighbors? So, you know, I think balance just isn't a word that we think about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we we do some things that amount to balance. We, we, we are mindful of our work schedules and we're mindful of carving out times that, you know, certain things are not focused on or prioritized or phones are, you know, maybe set aside here and there so we can watch a movie together as a family or whatever. But balance is not our chief concern. 
being is our chief concern. Are you worried about getting hurt and oh yeah, hurt or killed for sure? The way? All yeah. the time. How, how do you manage that with like the responsibility of being father and wanting to be in your kid's life, with also that you are resigned to this work? Yeah. Well, it's it's a fear that on some level is just a companion on the journey. It doesn't feel like something to fight against. It's good to just kind of be open about it as a family. So it can lead to, I think it has led to um, some beautiful goodbye routines where on a subconscious level and maybe sometimes an explicit level, we hug harder than we might if, if we didn't talk about some of these things, if we, if we had, tr- if we tried to hide the risk of this life and this work from our kids, there's some practical things where Jessica and I generally have, um, at least for, for times we've generally not gone to getting bombed at places together. So one of us will go, but not both of us, because I guess say it on the nose there's just a calculation that we've made that our family, though it would be horrible, can be well if one of us were to die. But it would it would somehow seem beyond the realm of responsibility for us to both knowingly go into some of the hardest places without our kids and leave them behind without both of us. Yeah. Um, so things like that. But yeah, the, the fear is real some days more than others for sure. But again, it all is taking place under a wider umbrella of who our family is and how we're trying to raise our kids. So if one of us were to die in doing this work, our kids would not see us as victims, I, I don't think. I think our kids would see us as exerting agency over this life that we have. And I don't think they would see us as someone having taken our lives. I think they would see us as us having laid our lives down to create a world that's more fair and equitable, just and loving for others. What is it that you want to have done during your time here, during your limited amount of time here on this planet? What is it that you want to have brought into the world? Mm. It's a little different than most people ask that, and I appreciate the nuance of how you said it. I could say it a couple of ways, but I, I guess I would. One thing I'd say is, I want to end war. We want to end war. We work to end war. I've I've lived through. We've lived through enough cycles of this to see that we were at peace with each other at one moment, and then we started killing each other in another moment, and then we went back to peace time and didn't kill each other anymore. So I, I know that war is not inevitable. I know it. I know we make these choices ourselves. And so if, if we can choose to start and we can choose to stop, then we can just choose to not start again. And that's true for Christians and Muslims and men and women and black people and white people and Kurds and Turks and Arabs and Sunni and Shia. It's, it's just true. It's more complex than pithy bumper sticker statements, but I just don't think it's inevitable. I think the root of war is fear and scarcity mindsets that there's not going to be enough for me and mine to go around. And so I I want to invest, we want to invest our lives in stopping the spread of violence, shoring up communities so that they're not so vulnerable to the predations of other people's violence, and then working to end, change the ideas that lead us to do violence against each other. We want to end war. This is the final question, and this is the way I like to end the program. If I could hand you this phone right now, and on the other end of it was either you at a younger age when you really needed to hear something, Mm. or just because of the work you do, just somebody else who's really full of fear, full of anger, Mm. full of trying to fix others maybe, what is the message that you would want to send to that person Mm. just to help carry them through their evolution? Keep going. Let Let me say it a little differently. Keep going, but keep going in this particular way. Dare to go out further away from home, further from what you know today, and do it by taking 
as little baggage as you can with you. So I, I went out from home. I left home, right? But for years, I was carrying all these preconceived, predefined sets of baggage with me. And so I wasn't transformed for years. I wasn't fully transformed because I already knew all the answers before, before I ever arrived in my new place. And it wasn't until I shed some of that baggage, until I loosened my grip on some of those conclusions, I allowed other people to inform me, to shape me, that I really changed. And so I just love that principle of like, be a traveler, be curious, leave home, the home of your faith, the home of your politics, the, the home of your conclusions about sexuality and identity, the, the home of your patriotism and nationalism, like take a tour somewhere else, but, but it works best when you don't bring all the baggage with you. Maybe even bring an empty bag and let other people fill that bag up with their conclusions and their experiences and their artifacts and then bring that bag of their experiences, bring it back home with you and see how home feels different when you get there. I love that. I had a time of atheism after I left Christianity and on my way back in, I really just wanted to find something because my other friends who had some sort of higher power were doing better than me, I felt like. Hmm. And uh, so somebody just said, you know, you don't like the prayers you already have. Just write, write your own, write your own for whatever you need. And one of the lines I wrote down was forget everything you think, you know, mm. so you can see what's right in front of you. Mm. Because when I'm in the DMV, also my life is falling apart when really I'm just at the DMV. Yeah. Jeremy, thank you for your time. Love that, man. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, before you leave, this is an audience-funded program. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash howtohuman. Listen to the episodes early, ask a question, become a part of the community. I need you guys. It's lonely here. I'd love your feedback on episodes before they come out. But also, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear from more of the guests or like to see what they're up to, I include all their social media and website links in the show notes, which is just the episode description. Thanks for tuning in to the How to Human podcast. Tell your friends.